Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be here and uh, to bring you the Word of God, which is uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and uh, a word that we need uh, desperately in our lives. You know, in uh, 1986, a book came out called This Present Darkness, uh, written by a man named Frank Peretti. I'm sure many of you have read it. I remember um, growing up in Christian circles and people reading even the young adult versions of those uh, of his books. And uh, there's lots of, of talk and speculation about what uh, spiritual warfare was all about. Uh, what, what are demons? What are they doing? What's Satan doing? And how do we as believers interact with and fight against uh, the enemy? And at one level, his books were helpful because they, they raised awareness. They raised awareness for the Christian church to be aware that there is a battle going on. We are in spiritual warfare, and we can't ever forget that. On the other side of it, though, is he tended to uh, overemphasize some aspects of spiritual warfare. This uh, putting too much attention on the demons and their activity uh, and, and downplaying the believer's activity in this uh, warfare. And so, and, and that really uh, illustrates how in this understanding of spiritual warfare, there's a, there's, a, there's a biblical narrow road that we must walk down. And there's ditches on either side. On, on one side, there's this materialistic denial, right? We live in a modern age we live uh, in, this, in this day and age in which we have uh, built so many things. We have advanced. Uh, we aren't in those third world countries that deal with witchcraft and evil spirits and all that stuff. You know, we deal here with, uh, with things that we can see and touch and feel. And, uh, and so because of the secular age that we're in, we can tend to deny and even downplay the fact that there is spiritual warfare. That there is... Satan and his demons that are attacking the work of God. On the other side, the other ditch that we can tend to fall on is this uh, over-spiritualization, this, this over-emphasis on the de- demonic realm. And this can, this can uh, take the form of, of really seeing a demon under every rock, as they say. Uh, the explanation for everything that goes on is there must be a demon there and a demon there. And, and all of our sin and different things going on in our lives that we're struggling with, well, we just, that's a demon in your life and that's a demon there. And, and so we can, we can uh, it, it then results in us trying to combat Satan and fighting demons and, and, a, and a focus on that. And the reality is those are both ditches on the side of the true biblical road that we need to walk when it comes to spiritual warfare. And so our concern is we want to know what the Bible actually says about spiritual warfare. We want to know what God has said, how we are to fight in this battle and how we're to engage in it. And so if you're not there already, I'd invite you to please open your personal copy of God's word to Ephesians chapter 6. To Ephesians chapter 6. And before we dive into our text, let me just remind us of the territory of the book of Ephesians. 
Ephesians is one of the easiest books to outline and to remember the outline or the structure of the book. Three chapters and three chapters. The first three are about doctrine, about belief, and the last three are about behavior, how we live. The first three, he dives deep into this rich gospel that we have, that Christ has saved us and set us apart. And then in the last three, he, he talks about how we live that out. If we truly believe and if the, all of this is true in chapters one through three, then this is how we're supposed to live four through six. And he begins that section in chapter four, verse one, by saying, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel that I just spent three chapters explaining. And he then goes on to describe what that gospel-centered life looks like. It, it means that believers live together in unity in the church. There's humility and unity by believers. That they live as new people in Christ, not as the old way of life that they used to live. A gospel-centered living uh, means that we walk wisely as children of the light. Not engaging in the deeds of darkness. And that uh, believers are then filled with the spirit as they fulfill their roles as husbands and wives and parents and children and employees and employers or slaves and masters in that day. And so he's, we're, as, we, as we come here to chapter 6, he's been describing all these ways that we are to live out this gospel-rich, Christ-centered life. And he ends by instructing us on the battle that we're in. That this is not an easy coast downhill to live this gospel-centered life. In fact, we are facing opposition. So let me read the text for us. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
Well, this morning, we're, from this passage, we're going to see three strategies for battling the enemy. Three strategies for battling the enemy so that we will stand firm in the face of opposition. So let's look first at the first strategy. Verses 10 through 13, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He first starts here by talking about the believer's power, the power that we have. His first concern in instructing on spiritual warfare and really an umbrella concern that's going to wrap up the whole passage is that, that we understand the strength and the power that we have in God. He wants us to realize that our strength is not in ourselves. It's not something that we can offer. He tells us to be strong in the Lord because we bring nothing to the table. We show up for battle and our power meter is at zero. We've got no power to be able to stand. Our strength brings no comfort, no security. Paul's basically saying that we are coming to the battle as a paraplegic. We are there, lifeless, unable to attack, unable to stand on our own. We have no ability. Now, this may sound quite depressing, but it's actually really cool. Because the power that's offered to us is supernatural. Rather than standing with our own human power, with our own human fleshly strength, we get supernatural power. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He, it's, a, it's a compound phrase which is, which is urging us to find our resources in Christ. The divine sovereign of the universe has offered his power to us for this fight against the enemy. And we can be strong in the Lord because we are united to him. This is the great truth of the gospel is that as believers in Christ, we've been united to the son of God. And so by being in Christ, then there's this inseparable union and we receive, as he said in chapter one, uh, we get all every spiritual blessing. And it's the spirit who gives this to us. It's a spirit who applies this strength to us, which is why in chapter 3, verse 16, in his prayer, Paul writes that the Christians, he prays that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You see, he, he's praying that these Christians would, would receive the power that comes through the spirit from Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, we have supernatural power available to us in our Christian lives. But we need to ask the question, how do we obey this? How do we see the power that's offered to us and apply it? This is the basics of living the spirit-filled life. We must live with a conscious yieldedness to God and a dependence, a reliance upon him for victory. Knowing that as we step into our Christian life every day, that we are not dependent on ourselves, that we are not resting on our own power to be able to stand firm and our own power to be able to obey. This means that we pray. We simply pray and we ask and, we, and we're on our knees saying, God, please work in me. I have no power. I will not be able to stand today unless you work in me. 
It's in those moments of obedience where we need to choose between good and evil. We need to choose between obedience or disobedience that we cry out to God for strength because we realize that we don't have it in and of ourselves. When your child disobeys for the thousandth time and you feel that anger rising up within you, you cry out to God and say, God, give me strength to discipline and love. So when someone cuts you off on your morning commute and you feel that, that frustration rising up, that you cry out for help and say, God, may I respond in a godly manner here. Or maybe your friend treats you wrong at school. And you become, you feel bitterness rising up. You see, in these moments of where we can either obey or disobey, we can't step into those in our own strength. We must recognize our bankruptcy and cry out to God that he would help us. That he would give us his strength. Because it's available to us. Which is why Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord. So we need to see the believer's power. But secondly, let's look at the believer's protection. Verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He says to be strong in the Lord. And then his means, uh, he explains the means by which we do that. We put on the full armor of God. Now, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while in prison. And it's not too hard to imagine as he is there in his prison cell, seeing soldiers on a regular basis, that he was able to pick up this great illustration for how the Christian is to live his life. And so he's got this vivid illustration right before him, and he is able to work that into how we fight in the spiritual warfare. And so he says that just as... The steel armor protected the Roman soldier in battle from head to toe. So also the believer's armor protects us in battle head to toe. Gives us the full protection, which is why he says to put on the full armor. Don't leave some pieces off. Don't leave some of it at home. But put it all on. And this is really reminiscent of what he's already said in chapter 4. In which he talks about putting off the old man putting off the old self and putting on the new self. This idea that we clothe ourselves we're, and as if putting on a garment of Christ, we're putting on this uh, new man which has new desires, new behaviors. And so he says here, his way of expressing it is to putting on the armor of God. It's essentially the same thing. We're putting on this new self to live a different way in which we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, Notice that this is the armor of God. It is armor that comes from God. It's armor that is given by God. But it's also armor that he himself wears. And we don't have time to go into it this morning. But all the pieces, almost all the pieces that are of armor that are listed here in this passage are stated in the book of Isaiah as pieces of armor that God himself or his Messiah wears. Which is why uh, in the NASB, you'll notice that the font changes later down in verses 14 and 15. It kind of gets into this small caps because they're trying to tell you that, that this is coming. In the background of Paul's writing here is the book of Isaiah. 
And so not only is this armor from God that he's prepared for us, this is armor from God that he himself wears. This is part of his own equipment. And so, folks, we can take comfort. As we stand in our Christian lives, as we step out day to day in the spiritual warfare, we are not unprotected. Our great and good and gracious God has given us armor to to enable us to stand. Now it's left to us to take it up. Now he says he gives us this armor. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. His call is for us to stand. Notice that this is not a command to go and attack. God has not given us armor so that we may go and attack the demons. In fact, nowhere in scripture are believers ever told to directly confront or go and attack the evil forces. This, the tone of this whole passage is defense. Hold your ground. Don't give up any ground. Don't let them get past. Dig in, fight back, and don't let them get past you. Four times in this passage, we see the exhortation to stand firm. And you get the picture of in the midst of a, of a violent storm out at sea, and you've got this lighthouse that's out on a, on a, on a rock in the midst of the sea, and the, and the waves are bashing against it and, and, and breaking against it and, and almost engulfing it in waves. And yet each wave comes and crashes against it and subsides, and the lighthouse is still there. So we, we receive these, the onslaught, the attack, and we, we hold our ground and it crashes against us. And we, with the strength of the Lord, we stand. And another wave comes and crashes against us. And by the strength of God, we stand again. That barrage, we can't hold up against. But by God's strength, we can. And with his armor, we can. Well, why do we need to stand? It's because of our opponent. So let's look now, he, Paul introduces us to the believer's opponent. We're standing firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on to say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the opposition that we face is... He says, schemes of the devil. Now, we need to make sure we correctly identify our enemy. If we don't know who our enemy is, we're going to fire at the wrong thing. We're going to uh, not know who it is that's attacking us. And so we need to know who this enemy is. He says it's the devil. This is, this is, the Bible identifies him as Satan, the ultimate enemy of God. He's the ancient serpent for He was there in the Garden of Eden, tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. Our passage that uh, was read earlier, 1 John 3, says that Satan, the devil, has sinned from the beginning. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Satan is the father of lies. This is a foundational definition of who Satan is. He's He's a father of lies. He is a deceiver. In fact, even the word devil... Uh, is, is, a, is a Greek word that means one who slanders. He's the slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren, as he says in Revelation. And Revelation 12, 9 and, and chapter 20, verse 2, tell us that Satan is the one who's deceiving the nations. 
He's deceiving the world. Which we can totally understand, right? You just have to turn on the news and you see the evil that is being wrecked across the world and you know that there is evil forces behind that. You know that there is, there is evil being done in the nations around the world. And the scriptures say that Satan is the one behind that. So you see this battle that we are, we are in that Paul says in, in Ephesians 6 is really a continuation of a great cosmic battle that has been going on ever since the beginning. Ever since Satan fell and rebelled against God. Ever since the garden. In which there was now a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the prophecy that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That one day Christ, that one day God's Messiah would come and deal once and for all with this enemy of God. And we see all through the Old Testament, right? There is this, there is this battle versus those of following the serpent and those following God, those following in God's true way. And this continues down even into the church age in which we, the church of God, as true followers of God, stand in line with Christ. We are united with him up against his enemy, Satan, and the evil forces. Those who follow the deceiver. There's only two sides of this battle and you're either on one or the other. You can't choose a middle ground and just choose to sit back and watch it play out. Either you followed Christ, repented and believed upon him for the forgiveness of your sins. Or you were following after your own way, your own sin, and you're really following after the deceiver. You're on his side. Now it's important to remember that the devil is the Lord's devil. What I mean by that is that God is sovereign over Satan. Satan, this is not a Star Wars theology in which you have light and dark and they're equal and they're just gutting it out and we're, we're crossing our fingers that the right team wins. This is God is sovereign over all. God has scripted the end, scripted the destruction of Satan. And yet Satan is a created being. He's limited in what he can do. He's limited in where he can be. He's not omnipresent. He's a created being. And so he only does what God allows him to do. You see that clearly in the book of Job, right? The first few chapters is this scene in a heavenly courtroom in which Satan comes before God and asks for permission to torment his servant Job. Satan understood he can't do anything without permission from God. So Satan is not, is not ruling this world in full sovereignty without his his power being in check. God is sovereign over him and uses his evil to bring about his purposes. But even with this being the case, he still does some serious damage, which is why Paul gives us this warning. He says that he is operating schemes. The word for schemes here in the Greek is methodias. And you can hear the word method in there, right? Uh, that's where we get the word method from. And it's this idea of his crafty plans. He's looking to come in the back door. He's looking to confuse. He's looking to deceive. He never comes in blatantly with a name tag that says Satan. Hi, you know, hello, my name is Satan. Um, he's coming in with another name. 
He's coming in and you didn't even know how he got in, but suddenly he's there. He's insidious. I remember as a teenager, uh, just as I started watching some Revolutionary War movies and just thinking how dumb it was for these two armies to slowly march towards one another out in the broad open with no protection to stop and to let them fire. And then they turned and fired with whoever was still living. Um, I thought, why don't you hide? Why don't you, you know, do some guerrilla warfare or something? And, uh, and that's exactly what Satan does. Satan's a terrorist. Satan's involved in guerrilla warfare. He's not playing by the rules. He's not coming in with his full army disclosed. He sneaks in into our ranks and he plants bombs and weapons and, and looks to create destruction. Okay, so we, need to, we want to combat these schemes. We want to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to know what his attacks look like. And I believe this is where many uh, believers have been deceived. We can be looking and we go, okay, we're, we're looking for uh, fighting against demonic powers and Satan. Uh, all right, if I see anything big and scary and demonic, I will fight against it. And we're not aware, we're not alert of the smaller, more insidious ways in which the devil can attack. In actually more mundane ways. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 4 for a few moments. Ephesians 4. Paul shows us how mundane these attacks can be. Look in verse 26. He says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul is saying that when we allow our, our anger to go unchecked, to be uncontrolled, that we are giving the enemy a foothold, as the NIV translates it, a foothold in our life. We're giving the devil an opportunity to deceive and to steer us off course. And I believe that that can really be applied to all of the sins that he mentions in this passage. These mundane sins. Verse 25, falsehood. Uh, he, verse 28, stealing. Verse 29, unwholesome talk. Verse 31, bitterness. Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, sexual immorality. These are the places in our lives where the enemy comes in as a terrorist and seeks to destroy... Our lives, our relationships, our families, and our churches. The enemy gets plenty of opportunities just by our own bitterness, our anger, our sexual immorality, our unwholesome talk. You see, he deceives us into thinking that we have the righteous high ground. We feel justified that we're angry. This person sinned. I should be angry. This person hurt me. I should be angry. I should say those hurtful words. And he gives us, deceives us with that lie and then slips out the back door and watch it, the relationship unravel. As we say one hurtful word after another. Also notice the context in which 
Paul is talking about the spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. What he has just come off saying is for us, for, for uh, Christians to live Christ-like in all of the ordinary roles of life. In our homes. Husbands, wives, in your marriage. Model Christ. Parents, children, follow Christ in how you live in the home. Employers, employees, how you're at work. Display Christ. And I believe then after talking about that and then, and then giving us this warning about spiritual warfare, Paul is trying to help us see we need to be alert in those mundane, ordinary places of our lives. The battleground for spiritual warfare is not in some third world country. It's in your home. It's in your bedroom. It's at your, your workplace. It's in the car with your family. This is where the enemy is striking. And we must be aware and alert. Because see, he's in the business of using our sinful old way of life behavior to tear apart relationships, tear apart families, and tear apart churches. His strategy is to get us distracted from Christ, to have us look upon ourselves, and to watch everything crumble. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what are the areas in your life where the devil may be getting a foothold? Where he's getting an opportunity? Where have you allowed disobedience to continue? Because that's where the enemy's working. Where have you taken off the armor? Where is sin destroying your relationship with God? Where is sin destroying your relationship with other people in your family or your friends? This is where the front lines are. And this is why we need God's strength and God's armor, right? We, we think about all the ways in which we fail, all the ways in which we, we sin, and we go, Lord, there, there's so many. I can't possibly plug all the holes. I, I, I can't fix everything tomorrow. And that's where we realize our weakness. And God says, I know, I've provided my armor for you. I've given my strength to you. Rely upon it. And this is where the struggle takes place. We fight sin. We, we live the Christian life. And the enemy strikes. And he says, in, look in verse 12. He describes this battle. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The word struggle there was used for the sport of wrestling. And it, if you've ever watched wrestling, you know how up close and personal that sport is, right? I mean, two bodies that are slammed against one another, hugging and pulling and, and trying to wrestle people to the gr- wrestle each other to the ground. That's the word he uses here. We're in, a, we're in a tumble, we're in a wrestling match with, not with flesh and blood, not with other humans. We're not really wrestling against other people. We're wrestling against the unseen forces. We're wrestling against evil forces. Now, in verse 12 here, he, he gives a list, right? A list of several different uh, 
demonic forces. Calls them rulers and powers. uh, World forces of this darkness. And spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They talk about uh, these titles represent uh, the, the power that they have. Represent some of the authority that they have. But other than these descriptions, we don't know. Uh, if there's, some of these are the captains of the evil army. We just have no way of, of knowing if there's a, uh, some sort of stratification in the way that they operate. We just know from Paul that there's a multitude of, of demonic forces that stand against us. Whose fundamental character is evil and wicked. And who dwell in the darkness. And so we need to recognize that. The force that stands against us is not uh, one puny little foe. This is a formidable enemy with all hosts of demonic powers against us. And this is our struggle. This is our wrestling. This is the front lines of spiritual warfare. But friends... We can look at this and go, man, we don't even know what these guys are doing. What, what are the rulers doing in my life? And what are the powers? How are they striking? And what is the world force of this? How do all of them function differently? And, and how can I protect against all of them? But we need to remember that we're on the winning side. We're, we're not in a hopeless battle. Christ has already defeated them. They, their power has, has been defeated at the cross of Christ. In fact, flip back to chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verse 20. Picking up mid-sentence here, but he says, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, we stand with Christ. We are united with Christ, the victor. The one who conquered the evil forces at the cross, who cut their power, and he now reigns and rules over them. We do not have to fear. We do not have to worry. We have been given his armor, and we've been given the assurance of victory. The passage read earlier in 1 John 3 says, says this, says the Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. That's one of the reasons Jesus came. To destroy those works and to cut his power. Now we may feel weak. We may feel inadequate for this fight. But may we stand like a young shepherd boy thousands of years ago. David, when he came to the front lines of the battle with Goliath. He didn't have the, any great armor. He didn't have any strength. They looked at him and said, you're young. You've got nothing. And yet what was, what was gripping him down to his bones was the fact that he was on the side of the living God and nothing could stand in his way. He looks at Goliath who's taunting the nation, nation of Israel and he says, 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? This young boy with with conviction and courage. Because he knew the power of his God. Goliath laughs at him. And David replies and says, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. He comes with courage and with strength despite his weakness. And believer, you are in such a battle. It can seem like we stand against a Goliath. But be encouraged. Have hope. You are on the side of the living God. He is fighting with you. He is fighting for you. Our success is certain. So our first strategy in engaging in spiritual warfare is to be strong in the Lord. Let's look at our second strategy. It's to stand firm in God's armor. Stand firm in God's armor. Verses 14 through 17. Now, Paul picks up this exhortation to stand firm. He says, stand firm, therefore. This is, again, a command of defense, uh, not uh, out in an attack, but, but our military captain has told us that we need to stand. And he's instructing us on how we need to stand and on what we need to, to put on, on these pieces of armor. So, so let's, let's look individually at what these pieces are and how they help us to stand. First is the belt of truth. He says, having girded your loins with truth. For the Roman soldier, he needed to wear a belt in order to hold up several pieces of clothing from from a leather protection of his thighs to his tunic when he needed to to run out into battle. The the belt was a enabled him to be prepared, enabled him to uh, be able to act swiftly because he everything was closed in around him. And so, so it is for us. The belt of truth, the belt of God's truth on us prepares us and enables us to fight in this spiritual warfare. This truth is simply God's word. This is the truth of who God is. This is the truth of the gospel. And it goes to show that for us to be prepared for this battle, you and I need to have a strong doctrinal foundation. We need to know what God's word says. We need to know what the truth of God actually is if we're going to stand. Because we need to have that wrapped around us. We need to have that close to us so that we are prepared and ready to fight. If the belt is loose, if we don't know God's truth, we're, we're going to be, things are going to be falling off and we're going to be distracted and unable to, to fight with efficiency. Now, each of you are responsible for putting this belt on. Students, your parents can't put this belt on for you. You can't say, oh, my parents have the belt of truth on. They know doctrine. They know the truth of God. You need to have this belt on. You can't, uh, your spouse can't put this belt on for you. You've got to put this on. Every believer needs to be girded with truth. This means that we need to treasure it. This means we need to soak up the truth of God. We need to come with a hunger to the word of God. So that we can build this foundation in our lives. We need to soak up scripture. Listen to good teaching. And if we do this, then we're going to be able to stand. So God has provided protection for you in the belt of truth. Have you put it on? Will you put it on? 
Secondly, he mentions the breastplate of righteousness. It says, in having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, uh, as you, I'm sure you've seen in a in hundred war movies, but the breastplate, right? A, a piece of steel that covers the to- upper torso. It, covered the ch- it protected the chest and all the vital organs of the soldier. And so this was, this was absolutely essential to protect against blows of a sword and arrows. And so for a soldier to go into battle without his breastplate on means he's totally exposed, totally open to attack. And he's, he's not able to last. He's not able to stand. And so Satan's uh, attacks are fully orbed. We need this breastplate of righteousness. So what is this righteousness? It's, the, it's not uh, simply the, the righteousness that we're, we're given at the point of salvation, at the point of justification. That's, that's our imputed righteousness. That's a one-time event. It's been given to us already as believers. So we can't put it on um, if it's already been given to us. And so I believe that this righteousness refers to a practical righteousness that's lived out in our daily life as we obey the scriptures. The righteousness that comes from living a right life according to the word of God. In other words, we need to be putting on the new man. We need to be putting on this. We need to be putting on Christ so that we are imitators of God in how we live. And so I, I believe it's fair to say then if, we're, if we are not living rightly, if there is not right living and righteousness flowing out of our lives, then we are making ourselves open and prone to attack. If we're living in disobedience, then we don't have the breastplate of righteousness on. It's in the impurity of our lives that Satan attacks as we've already talked about. And so... We're not putting on our own righteousness, right? Self-righteousness is as filthy rags. This is not going to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need a righteousness that God produces in us. This is depending upon the spirit. This is going back to verse 10, being strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. If we're going to live out this righteousness and put on this breastplate, we need to cry out to God and ask that he would produce it in us. Oh God, please produce this righteousness. Obedience protects us. It produces righteousness. And so we must not be lazy in living the Christian life. We must not have a, have a lazy attitude towards obedience. Because it's in those moments that we are susceptible and open to attack. Thirdly, the feet shod with the gospel. Verse 15, he says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the Roman soldier would wear several different uh, footwear. But the one mentioned here is referring to a footwear that had some spikes in the bottom of it so that the soldier could, could plant firmly and could, be, could, be, uh, could dig in and could hold his ground. He needed something that could dig in the ground like cleats and that could hold him so he, could, he would not get pushed over. And so Paul's saying, we need to have these upon our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul's calling us to be prepared, be prepared for battle. And the way that we be, are prepared for battle is with the gospel of peace. You and I enter battle not in, full of anxiety, not full of worry, but with a heart settled because of the gospel. Heart that is ruled and owned by peace. 
You see, God has ended the hostility that we have towards God. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's that peace that we have and we can step into the battle with. Resolute, calm, not frantic and panicked. The gospel prepares us to fight this battle. And, and Paul says we need to put this around our feet. So we need to have truth around our waist. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We need to be, be have our, on our feet this preparation of the gospel of peace. Next, he says the shield of faith. The fourth piece of armor. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, there's two different shields that the Roman, armor, uh, Roman soldier would carry. One would be a, a small round one that would be uh, for, um, uh, for up-close battles and whatnot. This other one was a large shield that was several feet long and uh, could, the soldier could crouch behind and hide behind. And this is the shield that's being talked about here. It was often two planks of wood that were glued together. It was soaked in, uh, it was covered in animal skins and then soaked in water. So that as uh, flaming arrows were brought against it, it could be extinguished and not set the whole shield on fire. Which might look cool for a few seconds, but is uh, not helpful when you're trying to protect against the enemy. Um, And so Paul is saying, we need to take up the shield if we're going to stand against the temptation and against the wiles of the devil. He calls them flaming arrows, right? Uh, Flaming arrows of the evil one. This is the temptation that Satan lobbies at us. And it's a battle for belief. That's why we need faith. And at the, at the core of every sin is the sin of unbelief. We're not believing something that God's word has said. And instead we're believing a lie. And Satan is good at that. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver. So his temptation is to come in and to tell us a lie in order to direct us off course. And this happens in our day-to-day fighting. Satan tempts us to believe that our spouse in this moment deserves our anger and wrath. But God says, vengeance is mine. Be angry and do not sin. What message are you going to believe? Pornography comes in. Satan brings the lie of pornography in and says, oh, no one will find out. It won't hurt anybody. And yet God says that for sure your sin will find you out. And that sin leads to death. Which message are you going to believe? You see, these flaming darts of unbelief and lies are flying at us every day. And if we don't have the shield of faith, we're not going to believe God's word. We're not going to take refuge in him. This is a faith that, again, we cry out to God to give us, right? We cannot produce his faith. We need his strength, which is why he told us that in verse 10. The next piece of armor, helmet of salvation. He says, and take up the helmet of salvation. Again, a a metal hat that was worn to protect against the blows of the sword and against arrows. And he says, this is the helmet of salvation. This is the salvation that we have been given. God has saved us. And so as the, as the, the lies of the enemy about assurance and our doubt of our salvation... You're not a Christian. A Christian wouldn't do that. You really, you really think you're a believer? Look at this. 
Look at this way he failed. All those, those ways in which he, he's trying to attack us and att- attack our assurance. Paul says, make sure you have the helmet of salvation on. Be secure in the fact that God has saved you. Remind yourself of the gospel. You've been united to Christ. The triune God has done everything to redeem you. Don't forget that. And so as we engage in this warfare, we need to remember our salvation and the greatness of it. Now lastly, the last piece of armor he tells us is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the only piece that is uh, offensive as well as defensive. He has, uh, up to this point, pretty much given us all defensive armor for us to stand and hold our ground. And here he gives us one weapon. This sword was not the long, huge, broad-handled sword that would take two hands to swing. But it was the shorter sword, 18 inches long, one-handed, close, hand-to-hand combat. See, these attacks are up close and personal. These things, these attacks from the enemy are right in our very lives and in our daily grind, which is why we need this sword every moment. And he says that this, this sword is the word of God. And we have no better example of how to use the sword in battle than Jesus Christ himself. Remember when he gets sent by the spirit out into the wilderness and Satan goes out to tempt him. Now, this is the son of God. You would think he's got a whole lot of options available to him. But the sword that he brings out to parry with the devil is the word of God. He says, it is written. And he, and he jabs. And then Satan tempts him again. He says, it is written. And he jabs again. And he defeats Satan with the Bible, with the Old Testament, by the way. Jesus Jesus' example is incredibly humbling. We can be looking for all sorts of tips and tricks. We're searching the blogs. We're asking friends. We're reading the book. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? When what we really need to battle is with the word of God. The scripture is our source for truth. And in with it, we battle. How often are we tempted and does, does the enemy's attack come and our, and our sword remains in the sheath? Or it collects dust. We believe the lie that this isn't relevant. This isn't really going to help me with my problem right now. And so we leave it sitting aside and look for advice and help in other places. But this is the sword of the spirit. This is the tool that the word that the spirit of God is using. If you want the, word, the Spirit of God to work into your life, if you want the Spirit of God to work in your family, if you want the Spirit of God to be, to be fighting off the, the schemes of the devil, we must be using the Word of God. Guys, nothing can replace it. Good Christian books can't replace the Word of God. Good Christian blogs can't replace the Word of God. Good Christian advice can't replace the Word of God. This is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 says. Let us not leave this weapon in its sheath. Let it recognize it's full and it's demanding power over our lives and over the schemes of the devil. Be reminded today that the Bible you hold in your hand is not just a book of, of ink on a page, but it's a living document. It's the tool that the spirit of God is using. 
And so we must firmly grasp this word if we're going to be effective in fighting the schemes of the devil. Well, let's lastly look at the third and last strategy. We'll look at this briefly. The last strategy is to pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit. Verses 18 through 20, he exhorts the Ephesians to pray. And this is a strategy that has really been in the background of all that he said so far, right? We've been talking about being strong in the Lord. And the way that we do that is that we cry out to God. We pray and ask for his help. We're told to put on the armor of God that produces obedience and faith and confidence. And yet it's God that's got to produce that faith and that obedience and that confidence. And so this prayer has really been here all along, but he brings it to the forefront here in verse 18. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. Paul makes it be clear that we can't uh, get by in this spiritual warfare without prayer. It won't happen. Spiritual warfare must be fought on our knees. We can't conquer on our own. We can't fight on our own. The power is given to us and thus we must pray and ask God to give it. We ask that God would act. We ask that God would protect. We ask that God would strengthen our faith. We ask him to bring victory over temptation. Guys, obedience goes hand in hand with prayer. The praying Christian does not depend on himself. He depends on God and thus God produces the obedience in him. But he doesn't sit on the couch. He's, he's up, he's working, he's defeating. He says that we need to pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit simply means that when the spirit prompts us to pray, you know, that, that tug, that nag of going, hey, you need to bring this to God. We don't ignore that prompt of the spirit. Pray in the spirit means that we're guided by the word of God. The requests that we ask for and that we, we bring are, are informed by scripture. Not just our own desires. And we know that when we do pray, the spirit of God helps us. And so this prayer must be fervent. A prayer in the midst of battle is not a lazy, yawning, oh, I can't remember what I'm praying about kind of prayer. A prayer in the midst of battle is one in which there is blood, sweat, and tears. We're battling on our knees. And guys, we need scripture passages like, passages like this to open our eyes to the spiritual realities that we're in. Like we talked about, we live in a secular age in which any sort of awareness of the spiritual is pushed to the sidelines. And they say, to, you can practice that at home and you can practice that at your churches, but don't be thinking about that. Don't be bringing that into the public square. Because there's a spiritual warfare going on all the time. And we need to be, have our awareness, our alertness informed by scripture so that we will pray with a fervency that is of a soldier in battle. Where there's bullets flying all around us and we're in the foxhole and we're asking God's help, asking for his protection. We need to be reminded of that. Just that, that reality of what this passage is talking about will enliven our prayer life. Because we are in a battle. Now, verses 19 and 20, Paul mentions himself. He asks for prayer for himself. And I think as, a, as he says, he's sitting in chains, he's in prison, and he asks that he would be given boldness to share the gospel. 
I think our application for us is to pull back and realize that not only are we in a spiritual battle in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church, but we together are battling the forces of darkness through our missionaries overseas. We need to remember them as they are there in their context, battling, and they, and they need boldness and clarity in proclaiming the gospel. They're on the front line too. They may not be sitting in a prison cell, but they're sitting in a hut in Papua New Guinea. They're sitting in an apartment in China. They're sitting in a house in Israel. Let's not remember them. Let's not forget them. Wow. (laughs) You mean what I know, right? Um, Let's not forget them. We battle together with them as we fight this Christian life, as we battle in this spiritual warfare. So friends, let me just encourage you, depend on the Lord, go to him. He has offered you all the strength that you need. He's offered you all the armor you need. And remember that the battle of spiritual warfare happens in the little places of compromise, of sin, and disbelief. And let us pray that God will enable us to cultivate families and hearts and a church that depends on the Lord and fights with his strength. Let's pray. Our loving Father, when we think of the gospel, we are overwhelmed by all that you have done for us. You have redeemed us. You've saved us. You have forgiven us of our sin through the blood of Christ. And Father, you have not left us here to battle here in this life on our own. You didn't just say good luck. You said, here, I've given you everything you need. Father, may Foothill Bible Church be a church and a collection of families who are aware and alert of the battle, who fight not with their own strength, but fight with yours. And God, would you give us the humility to cry out and depend upon you in the moment of the battle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.